A few years ago, Rasmussen, polling company, they released a comprehensive report, really kind of unique, all things considered, that found nearly one in five American Christians, 19%, not only question the resurrection of Jesus as being a fact of history, but reject the resurrection of Jesus as even being a central tenet of the Christian faith. Again, one in five, 19%. In today's culture, many people want to believe in Jesus without actually believing Jesus. Let me say this as as clearly as I possibly can. You are absolutely entitled to a belief that Jesus did not rise from the dead. But you cannot hold such a belief and also consider yourself a Christian. John MacArthur agrees, writing, The resurrection of Jesus is the single greatest event in the history of the world. It is so foundational to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. To this point, it's worth noting that since the formation of Christianity, every single Christian creed has affirmed the resurrection of Jesus as being a central core belief. The original Apostles' Creed stated that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead, but on the third day rose again. The Nicene Creed, formed during the First Council in 325 A.D., stated, quote, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and on the third day rose again. The Westminster Confession of Faith, formed in 1646, articulated clearly, quote, The Lord Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, remained under the power of death, saw no corruption. On the third day he rose from the dead, with the same body in which he suffered. Even the Catechism of the Catholic Church, formed in 1992 by Pope John Paul II, stresses the irrevocable importance of the risen Lord, presenting, quote, the resurrection of Jesus as being, quote, the crowning truth of our faith in Christ. The simple reality is this position, shared by one in five, 19%, that the resurrection of Jesus is not necessary to the Christian faith, is simply intellectually inconsistent. Theologian and Jesuit priest, Gerald O'Collins, once wrote, Christianity without the resurrection is not Christianity without its final chapter. It's not Christianity at all. I couldn't agree more. In fact, the Bible also agrees. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul affirmed how our faith in Jesus would be impossible apart from the resurrection of Jesus. He wrote to the Corinthian believers, if Christ has preached that he has been risen from the dead, how do some, of them, some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith empty. Pretty heavy words by Paul. Though I am willing to concede that the claim Jesus rose from the dead, after predicting he would do so on three separate occasions, is radical. I mean, let's get that out of the way. No one has ever dared make such an assertion or a claim. No religion or moral leader. But aside from that, the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. As just one example, extrapolate out a logical explanation for how the skeptics of Jesus' resurrection 
end up becoming proponents. Apart from an actual resurrection, explain how the disciples go from being pitiful cowards to bold proclaimers in the span of a few days. Proclaimers, by the way, who would end up laying down their own lives over a refusal to recant. You see, the scriptures are clear. These disciples, they didn't expect Jesus to die, yet alone rise from the dead on the third day. You see, in line with traditional Jewish thinking of that time, these men were convinced when they were heading to Jerusalem that Jesus was going to lead a revolution, triumphantly uh, defeating the Romans, ushering in a new kingdom. Even before Jesus was crucified, as he's being arrested in the garden, every one of them but John, our author, completely disappointed that their dreams and aspirations had been dashed, abandoned him. They abandoned Jesus. They run into hiding. They deserted the faith. They became skeptics. Not one of these men had any belief at all that Jesus would actually rise from the dead three days later. And yet, something so monumental occurred. During the 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, that it not only changed their lives forever, but something happened that revolutionized their perspective. Angl Anglican cleric John R.W. Stott has argued, writing, the transformation of the disciples of Jesus might very well be the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. Also consider this. If the resurrection of Jesus never took place, how do you explain the transformation of men who really wanted nothing to do with Jesus, who were enemies of Jesus, men like James, Jesus' half-brother, or Saul of Tarsus. How do you explain the transformation in their lives apart from the resurrection? I mean, overnight, both of these men would go from being enemies of Christ to faithful followers. You see, the fact remains that something miraculous had to have taken place in order to explain what happened in the weeks following Jesus' crucifixion. History records that thousands of people in just five weeks would leave Judaism to become followers of Jesus. Like, I mean, think about that for a moment, what that would entail. You had a group of people that something happened that caused them to abandon all of their traditions, all the things that had been core essential values and beliefs since childhood, like they stopped offering animal sacrifices. They abandoned a strict adherence to the Mosaic laws. Something happened that caused them to change their observance of the Sabbath to a worship of God on Sunday. Like, how do you explain that? How do you explain a move from monotheism to a Trinitarian view of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? They even adopted, within weeks, a completely new perspective and view of the Messiah itself, his mission. Like, how do you explain this radical, revolutionary shift in religious thought apart from the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, it's incredible to consider, but Christianity would not only peacefully triumph over competing ideologies, but would spread so rapidly over the span of like 20 years that it even reached, the gospel message reached, the palace of Caesar, Caesar's household. I've heard it observed that Christianity's 
lasting impact was so successful, today we name our children Peter and Paul and our dogs Caesar and Nero. In his book, The Contemporary Scholarship and Historical Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's quite a lengthy title, scholar William Lane Craig, he reaches this conclusion. He writes, these three great facts, the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb, and the origin of the Christian faith, all point to one unavoidable conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus. Today, the rational man can hardly be blamed if he believes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. As a fact of history, beginning with Mary Magdalene in the garden, progressing down through the centuries to today, an innumerable amount of people from all walks of life, all ethnicities, all places on the globe, have claimed to have had a personal encounter with a resurrected Jesus. It's been observed the issue with Jesus isn't that he was nowhere to be seen, it's that he was seen alive, seen dead, then seen alive once more. As you mull these things over on your own, remember that Christianity did not form in a vacuum. Every single event that contributed to the development of your faith and mine occurred in public, out in the open. After a three-year public ministry, Jesus was crucified in a public place, Golgotha. He was placed in a public tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, protected by public guards. Upon rising from the dead, Jesus presented himself to the public on at least ten separate occasions. In truth, the number of eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus is legally speaking overwhelming. Aside from the gospel narratives, according to the Apostle Paul, again writing in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Jesus was raised on the dead according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep, meaning they've passed away. Jesus appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. Jesus appeared to me also, Paul writes. In a famous debate concerning the resurrection, and you can find this on YouTube, New Testament scholar Dr. Gary Habermas, he closed his argument this way. He says, here's how I look at the evidence for the resurrection. First, did Jesus die on the cross? Secondly, did he later appear to people? If you can establish those two things, you've made your case because dead people don't normally do that. He's right. Following Jesus' appearance in the garden to Mary Magdalene, which we looked at a few weeks ago, recorded here in the first 18 verses of John 20, the Gospels note how Jesus appeared almost immediately after this to another group of women. They received news of his resurrection. Jesus appears to them. The harmonizing of the records indicate that Mary Magdalene likely catches up with these other ladies, and together they come and they share with nine of the disciples the news of Jesus' resurrection, the fact that Jesus had appeared to them. It would appear Peter, who again we saw a few weeks ago, is considering things, considering the garments, considering the empty tomb, as well as John, who's not considering anymore. He's convinced. He's a believer. They're absent from this report. And the reason that they're absent, that the report of the women, Mary Magdalene, is only to nine, 
is because in Mark 16, verse 11, we read that they did not believe the reports. In fact, Luke 24, verse 11 says that their words seemed to these nine disciples like idle tales. They didn't believe them. You see, between John 20, verses 18 and 19, where we left off a few weeks ago, where we're about to pick up, the narrative is actually continued in Luke 24. And in that narrative, it indicates that following his first appearance to Mary and his second appearance to these women, Jesus will appear. So between verses 18 and 19, Jesus will also appear to two disciples who have left Jerusalem. They're on the road to Emmaus. In addition to that, Jesus will also have a private meeting with Peter somewhere in Jerusalem. We have no details of that occurrence whatsoever. We just know what happened. In Luke 24, verses 33 and 34, we read how Jesus revealed himself to the two men on the road to Emmaus, that after that, they immediately rose up that hour, returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together and said, the Lord is risen. He's appeared to Simon. Sadly, though, and this sets the context for what we're about to look at. Even with their witnesses, these two disciples, the ladies earlier, including Mary Magdalene, John, and now Simon Peter, Mark 16, verse 13, indicates these nine men, nine disciples, still did not believe. Verse 19, then, the same day at evening, so this is still the day of resurrection, this is still Sunday, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Now, it's not mentioned, but it's likely Thomas has gotten up and left. And then we're told that Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. The way John describes the scene indicates that the gathering here was far from accidental. In fact, he writes, look at it, the disciples were assembled. This Greek word that we have translated as assembled, it's synago. It's the root by which we get the word synagogue. Like the idea that John is conveying to us is that this gathering was planned. It was an official meeting. It was called. By this point in time, again to recap, some 12 hours or so following Jesus' resurrection earlier that morning, Mary Magdalene, a group of women, two unnamed disciples, John, Peter, they're all believers. Personally, I think it was Peter and John who call this gathering, call this meeting, hearing that the nine other disciples are still doubters, they're still skeptics. Now we can imagine that the singular item on the agenda was discussing the unique events of the day. John adds that while they're meeting, the doors were shut for fear of the Jews. This Greek word shut implies that the doors were shackled or totally obstructed. These men in this room, they were on lockdown. What was it that these men were so afraid of that they'd have to take this type of extraordinary precaution? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, we read that following the earthquake at the tomb earlier that morning, the appearance of the angel, the pronouncement that Jesus had risen from the dead, we're told that some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Three days earlier, these religious leaders 
who, by the way, had conspired to have Jesus illegally crucified, they had been granted permission from Pilate to place this guard outside of the tomb with the stone officially sealed. Their fundamental fear was that Jesus' followers, his disciples, might attempt to steal the body and create a hoax. These men even attest to Pilate that they knew Jesus had predicted he would rise from the dead three days in the grave. Now, as you would expect, the report that these soldiers bring back (laughs) was disconcerting. And in fact, you can imagine that word is spreading on the Jerusalem street that not only is Jesus' body missing from the tomb, but the rumor mill is that he'd risen from the dead. In fact, there were even people talking that they had seen him alive. Now, now keep in mind, Matthew's clear that only some of the guard came and reported, leaving a contingent of eyewitnesses free to tell people what they had seen, what they had heard. Desperate to combat the rumors with a believable spin of their own, Matthew tells us that when they had assembled with the elders consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell people that his disciples came, stole the body away while we were sleeping. If this comes to the governor's ears because such a thing was punishable by death, a Roman falling asleep on watch was a no-no. It says, if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll appease him, we'll make you secure. So they took the money, did as they were instructed. This is the saying commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, the reason the ten disciples now are afraid, the reason that they have assembled together, but they got the room on lockdown, is that they'd likely heard that they were now being accused by the religious establishment who had executed Jesus of stealing the body of Jesus. Like, they knew, these men knew that they were innocent, that there was no evidence of their guilt but I'm sure they were equally aware that innocence doesn't matter when a cover-up is afoot. Well, as these men are brainstorming their next move, talking about what's happened this day, John recounts, and it's such interesting words, he says that Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. The word came, It's interesting. It can literally mean to come into being. It's not so much coming in in the activity, but more of in the being. Now, Now, there are some that, as they paint this scene, they have Jesus walking through a wall. And maybe he did. But the word itself indicates more of the idea that Jesus simply materialized in the midst of the room. I mean, what must that have been like when this group of men and women in debate, talking, anxious, what must it have been like when they realized Jesus was standing there? Like the the construct of John's description is that Jesus appeared amongst them, in the middle of them. Like how long did it take for them to notice an unexpected guest? was standing there? How long did it take for them to compute what they were seeing? Could that really be Jesus? Now, there are some skeptics of the resurrection who speculate that in their collective grief and anguish, the disciples and all those present in the room, they experienced kind of a group hallucination that convinced them Jesus had truly risen from the dead and was standing there. 
The problems with this theory are obvious. First, the psychological makeup of the disciples is not conducive in any way to a hallucination. A hallucination needs a fertile mind of expectancy, anticipation. These men are the opposite. They're fearful. They're doubtful. They're in despair. They're doubting. Secondly, biologically, hallucinations are always linked in some way to an individual's subconscious, to a person's past belief or past experiences. What makes that important is that it's impossible for two or more people to have the same hallucination at the same time. If they were hallucinating, they're all seeing different things, not the same thing. Beyond that, we're going to see that Jesus spoke to them, touched them, they ate with Jesus. Again, not characteristic of a hallucination in any way. Look at Jesus' first recorded words to this group of men and women. He says, peace be with you. This makes a lot of sense. In Luke chapter 24, verses 37 and 38, we're told that the initial reaction in this room when Jesus appeared in their midst was terror and fright. In fact, Luke even says that they were convinced, at least initially, that they were seeing a spirit or a ghost. It's in response to this that Jesus actually rebukes them to a degree. He says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? John picks up in verse 20 and that when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In this moment, Jesus does several important things in the lives of these men and women, and by extension, us, because all of this is going to have very far-reaching effects, ripple effects. First, Jesus comes into the midst. They're freaking out. They're terrified. They think it's a ghost. And what does he do? He calmly assures them that he had in fact physically risen from the dead, that he's not a ghost, he's not a spirit, he's not going to attack them. John records how Jesus showed them his hands and, and his side. In Luke's account of the event, we also read how Jesus instructed them, saying, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see or touch, touch. Does a spirit have flesh and bones as you see I have? Luke then adds, but while they still did not believe for joy and they, they were marveling, Jesus then goes one step further. You can touch me. You can see me. Do you have any food here? Jesus asks. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Again, all things a ghost can't do. Now to be fair, these men and women are witnessing <laughs> something that's never happened in the history of humanity. We should cut them a little slack. I mean, name on one hand the number of people who've been dead for three days, then rose to life on their own. There's only one. Like a measure of skepticism on their part is reasonable. I think it's understandable. And yet, 
what I love about this passage is that Jesus has zero problem with doubt. You notice he doesn't rebuke them for doubt or being skeptical or having some questions. Not at all. In fact, not only does he refuse to rebuke them for skepticism, Jesus was more than willing to just meet them where they were. It's like Jesus shows up. He's like, guys, it's me. I know, it's crazy. Hard to believe. But, but here I am, touch me. Give me something to eat, I'm hungry. I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost. Jesus meets them where they were at. I love that. It's important you realize the profound nature of the resurrection of Jesus. And what I mean by the profound nature, I mean its implications as well as its application for our lives. What makes the resurrection of Jesus so radical, so important, is not found in some keen new idea. The resurrection of Jesus is not about a new idea. It's not about a new philosophy. It's not about an advanced theology or fresh moral framework, a code to live by, or a cool idea. That's not what the resurrection of Jesus, that's not what makes it important for us. What makes the resurrection, in a sense, the power of the resurrection, it's found in one key reality. That the resurrection of Jesus is the revelation of a person. The resurrection of Jesus reveals to us Jesus. Again, it's not rocket science, but, but don't miss it. The resurrection of Jesus is important because it reveals to us that Jesus is no longer dead. That, that has a profound implication for us. The resurrection is proof that Jesus crossed the grand divide successfully. His return validates the important reality that there's life after death. Friend, you can be sure there's an afterlife because Jesus existed after death. That's awesome. See, the resurrection affords you the confidence that Jesus is alive today, acting as your mediator and advocate, your high priest in heaven, that Jesus, because he's alive today, hears your prayers Without the resurrection of Jesus, who are you praying to? You have no idea. At best, it's a guess. You're throwing it up, seeing if it sticks. But the resurrection of Jesus lets us know with a surety that he's alive and he hears me. Do you realize that Jesus is alive? And when you pray, he hears you. And he listens. And he's interceding on your behalf. You know, friend, that when you breathe your last, you won't be alone. And why can you be sure of that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection affords confidence that you can have a relationship with Jesus today, but that's only made possible because he rose so many years earlier. I love the fact that Jesus' first word to these men and women, no doubt freaked out by his presence, was peace. The first word of Jesus, peace. Now keep in mind, nine of the men in this room had not only abandoned Jesus in the garden, but had remained skeptical of the reports that they had been given that Jesus had rose. 
Like, I'm sure that they're expecting when they see Jesus in their midst, a rebuke or at least a reckoning. How, ama- how refreshing it must have been for those guys. And that moment that their eyes meet Jesus's, and they're like, oh no, <laughs> this happened, and I, well, this could be bad. For them to hear a a risen Jesus, just look. And I'm sure that his face, there was a tenderness and a grace and what the tone must have been like to hear Jesus say, Shalom, y'all. It's all good. You know, contrary to the position of the legalist, Jesus didn't rise from the dead to then condemn the world of sin. There are a lot of churches you go to that you get that kind of idea about Jesus. That he rose from the dead to start kicking people in the shins. That's not why he rose from the dead. He didn't rise to condemn the world of sin. He rose to save the world from sin. Jesus didn't victoriously conquer the grave, only to then bury humanity under a weight of condemnation. Jesus rose to yield peace in the lives of all those navigating this storm we called life. Jesus rose to provide you peace with your Creator, not conflict. I love the fact that the very first message Jesus has for the masses is one repeated throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament. It's one of grace and peace. Notice from the text. So there's a group of people that encounter the resurrected Jesus. And He assures them He had physically risen, right? But then what does He do? For those who had encountered the resurrected Jesus, he doesn't allow them to remain stagnant. Instead, he gives them a mission. Did you notice that from the text? He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now what's interesting about that statement is that we actually have two different Greek words for sent me and send you. The first word is apostello. It literally describes a sending out. But this second word, pimpho, it means, and check this out, to send by being thrust into another. So so Jesus, he says, as the Father has sent me, an original sending, I'm sending you. Like the idea that Jesus is articulating is that he was sent. And then what does he do? some point we encounter him. (laughs) He bumps into us. And what happens? In reaction to the encounter with Jesus, we then are sent out as a reaction to that. He bumps into us. Then we move. We continue forward the motion he initiated. Like, Like what it means is that our mission in this world, friend, is simply the continuation of his mission also indicating that our mission derives its power and its authority from Jesus' original sending. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Paul describes us as ambassadors for Christ. He's playing on some familiar imagery. Jesus is the king of a spiritual kingdom of which we are all presently citizens. That being said, We don't currently find ourselves living in that kingdom. We find ourselves 
in foreign lands, but not on accident. We're here for a purpose. As ambassadors on foreign soil, we have no authority in and of ourselves. Our job is to simply do what? It's to represent and articulate the wishes of our king and our kingdom. In this world, you and I exist to operate as extensions of Jesus. We're commissioned by our king to continue forward the mission that he had originally been given before handing it over to us. He was sent, now he sends us. He bumps into us and then we move forward in his power and his authority as his representatives. With this in mind, knowing that we would need supernatural power to continue forward a mission that originated in the supernatural, look back at the text. John tells us something amazing. When Jesus had said this, so when he gives them this mission, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The word translated breathed, that he breathed on them, It's fascinating, to say the least. First, it's the only time that this Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. Only once, here. In fact, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we find this particular word only used in one other place. So it's a very rare word. You want to take a guess where we find that word in the Old Testament? Well, we find it in Genesis 2, verse 7, where we read that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed, same word, into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I believe John was very intentional with his use of this specific word. And don't forget, John doesn't have a very big vocabulary. If you study the Gospel of John, Revelation, and his three little letters, he's got about 600 words. That's about on par to a first grader. Which is why he repeats himself a lot and it's very simple trying to communicate the very complex. In the beginning was the Word. and The Word was with God. Well, You're like, he's you. Mind meld. John. But he pulls this word out of thin air. And I think he does so very intentionally. You see, I think John is wanting to connect this moment back to the creation narrative to illustrate what Jesus is really doing. You see, in much the same way as God originally breathed physical life into Adam, in this upper room on lockdown, Jesus was breathing spiritual life into his disciples. Most scholars believe this was likely the moment of regeneration, like the actual point in time where these men and women were born again. As Jesus breathed on them, the Holy Spirit came into them, bringing life, bringing to life, the very thing that had been dead since birth, dead because of sin. In this moment where Jesus breathes on them, a supernatural transformation takes place inside of their being. When Jesus breathed on them, only to then command that they receive the Holy Spirit. I love the fact that in the act itself, Jesus is illustrating that the very life within him is now being placed within them. You see, 
the power for you and I to fulfill the mission of Christ. That sending is only found in the indwelling Spirit of Jesus. To fulfill the mission of Jesus, we need the Spirit of Jesus. It makes sense, right? Today, the very Spirit that resided within Jesus Christ is presently indwelling you, and it's indwelling me. Admittedly, this line where John continues, he says, again recording Jesus, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, now that line has been the subject of great debate and controversy over the years. In fact, this verse itself has been twisted by the Roman Catholic Church to give the power of salvation, forgiveness, and ultimately condemnation to the Pope and by extension priests. The initial problem with that, though, originates with a misconception. And the misconception is that Jesus had this exchange with only the apostles. But again, Luke chapter 24 tells us that this room is filled not just with the apostles, and what Jesus is articulating is not just to the apostles. The room is filled with a multitude. We don't know how many beyond just the eleven. Biblically, we're assured that Jesus is speaking these important words to a group of Christians, and therefore, by extension, every Christian, not just to an apostolic authority. Beyond this, in the original Greek grammar, now, I, I, I don't, I'm not Greek, spoiler. I don't read Greek. I don't speak Greek. But I study those who do. And so I'm going to kind of just regurgitate what they say about the grammar here. Okay? Because if you actually look into the grammar of what Jesus is articulating, if you get into the Greek of it and the structure, this is not that complicated. As a matter of fact, it's very simplistic. Jesus is literally saying, if you forgive the sins of any, and in the Greek, that word any, literally it can be, if you forgive the sins of any that have already been forgiven, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any that have already been retained, they are retained. Again, because we are sent in the authority of Jesus and His power as representatives, it is now our right as Christians, all of us, not to condemn to hell, not to save. That's Jesus' job. But as representatives, it is our responsibility, according to Jesus, to speak His truth into people's lives when it's warranted. Like, practically speaking, we have the right to pronounce the forgiveness of sins, that your sins have been forgiven. Or we have the right to warn of a future condemnation for sins. Like, for example, if a person accepts Jesus, you lead them in a prayer and they accept Christ, you can declare as a representative of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus that their sins have been forgiven. You can pronounce that. You can say that with surety, with confidence. You've accepted Jesus. You're forgiven, man. I'm not forgiving you. I'm just declaring you've been forgiven. On the flip side, if someone rejects Jesus, is an enemy of Christ, 
You can also say, if this continues, you're going to go to hell. I'm not condemning you. I don't damn you. But this will be the result if you continue the trajectory that you're, that you're on. You know, it's a shame that today most Christians shy away from making such proclamations out of fear of the secular mob. Like the truth is that we live in a cultural environment where it's okay for people to condemn our biblical beliefs about sexuality, gender, and life, but it's totally prejudicial for a Christian to ever question any of the tenets of this new progressive moralism. In fact, such declarations, like an active homosexual lifestyle is sinful in the eyes of God, or, or human life begins at conception and to abort that life is wrong, or to say that God made humanity male and female and that gender distinctions intend to complement one another in matrimony, or to say whether you go to heaven or hell is completely based upon whether you accept Jesus as your Savior or not, those type of statements moral observations and declarations in our culture are perceived as being so unacceptable. You'll be ostracized from society, kicked off the platform. The problem with Christians acquiescing to the secular mob by allowing ourselves to be silenced from speaking out on moral matters, and I understand why we're hesitant, you know? I mean, no one likes to be called a racist. <laughs> no one likes to be called a sexist. No one likes to be called hateful or bigoted or prejudicial or phobic. You fill in the blank. But allowing ourselves to be silenced concerning moral matters, the problem with this is that in doing so, we ultimately neuter the very gospel message that we've been called and commissioned by Jesus to proclaim to the world. Let me explain that. The truth is the power of forgiveness can only exist in the life of a person who first senses a need to be forgiven. Like salvation from sin and the redemption of a fallen nature means nothing to a person who fundamentally rejects the very idea their behavior is sinful and not as God intended. How can the gospel be relevant to a person who takes pride in their sin. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating calling people out concerning their sin should be the core of our message. That once you leave the church, we've got a bunch of signs for you, and we're going to go down and start picketing things. Heaven forbid. And, and, and matter of fact, the Apostle Paul reminds us something we should always remember. Romans 2, verse 4, that it is the goodness, the grace of God, that always leads a man to repentance, not condemnation. However, if we aren't willing, as Christians, commissioned by Jesus, if we aren't willing to call sin, sin, out of fear, I'm afraid we have no message at all for a lost culture. Christian, as apostles of Jesus, sent ones, sent because you bumped into Jesus, and that did something crazy a reaction, which is what grace is all about. As an apostle sent into this world under his authority and filled with his spirit, we need to be bold as well as willing 
to lovingly tell people the truth about sin. To tell people the truth about the warped nature of their behaviors. Even if telling people results in tangible consequence. Because we've been given the gospel. In closing, let me pivot. I want you to know that one of the most powerful evidences of the resurrection, the most powerful proof of the resurrection of Jesus, is the rational people who point to an encounter with a living Jesus as the sole reason their life changed for the best. I mean, think about the person that brought you to church this morning. Maybe somebody you used to party with and you've seen something happen. Like, how do you explain that transformation? How do you explain the transformation from sin to righteousness apart from something super, supernatural, an encounter with a living Jesus? I close with a quote from English columnist A.N. Wilson writing this. My belief in the resurrection has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of the people I have known. Not the famous, not saints, but friends. Relations who have lived and faced death in the light of the resurrection story. Or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future when they die. You're going out in the world telling people you encountered a resurrected Savior. Does your life look like it? Does it look like it? That you've touched the divine. I can tell you Jesus rose from the dead. Here, here's why. Because I know him. <laughs> I encountered him. He's changed, he changed me and is changing me. He's transforming me. I'm hanging out with Jesus all the time. It was really hard to argue with that. Well, I don't believe in the resurrection. Well, I do. How do you? Well, because I've met Jesus, which means that the resurrection had to have happened. No, you didn't. Well, you know, I really did. No, you couldn't have. No, but I really could. I'll introduce you if you'd like. Hey, you encounter the resurrected Jesus. Boom, you bump into him. And now you're in motion are you? So Father Lord, we just let that marinate.